Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 118, Balkan Smoke and Unifications. First, I want to thank our newest patron. That is Grant McWilliams, uh, based in Mexico. Thank you so much, Grant. It's nice chatting with you and hope you decide to take on that project. Granted, you're, I think, on episode 28, so you won't see this for a while, but here's that to you. Now, first as a note, I recently purchased a whole bunch of books to use in the podcast going forward. Thank you, Patreon supporters and donors, for making that possible, um, <laughs> giving me the excuse to spend an absurd amount of money on a bunch of hard-to-find books. But Anyway, in any case, that means I'm starting to find some interesting things that are from recent periods that, that I hadn't covered. You know, I didn't know about these things and I just found them out now. So I'm just going to kind of mention a few of them. Now, one thing that I thought was you know worth talking about, even though it happened a few decades in the past from what we're covering right now, was how the rise of Bulgarian trading and light industry within the Ottoman economy, which we've talked about, is it's been happening, was in part spurred by the Greek War for, of Independence, that this fighting between the Greeks and the Ottomans in part made Greek traders and, and artisans and such more kind of suspect in Ottoman eyes, although the Greek-dominated Orthodox Church was still as conservative as ever, and you know they were exempt from this kind of concern. But what that meant was that the Ottomans started to rely more on Bulgaria for all kinds of products that they needed in the mid-19th century, and we've seen that happen, right? That uh, all kinds of products, particularly for the Ottoman military, you know, the cloth for their uniforms and you know, wood and metal things, a lot of this stuff is being produced in Bulgaria, and this is in part why. Now, moving from there, last time we talked about the geopolitical shift Russia was experiencing from using its hard power, the threat of war, to gain power in the Balkans and the Ottoman realm, and a shift from that to being forced to rely on soft power. This is actually pretty good news for Bulgaria because it meant that the Russians needed to work harder to gather support there. In practice, this meant that more support for revolutionaries like Rokovsky, there was more revolutionary, uh, sorry, educational support, and a kind of reconsideration of Russia's stance against Bulgarian church independence. And we'll talk about that more. Now, um, before we get to kind of the typical narrative, though, I want to start this episode by touching on something else from one of those new books, talking a bit about tobacco before yeah, moving on. Now, I recently got my hands on Mary Newberger's excellent book, Balkan Smoke. I'm a big fan of her work. Uh, shout out to Mary Newberger. Um, so her, her book is Balkan Smoke, Tobacco and the Making of Modern Bulgaria. And I wanted to start using it to discuss how tobacco has affected Bulgaria up until this point in our narrative, and I'll be using it going forward for occasional kind of segues into how tobacco is affecting Bulgarian history culturally, economically, in all these various ways. First, uh, an interesting little tidbit from there from actually just 1858 from that I should have included in the last episode if I had time. Now, there's a person I wanted to mention connected with that year. Back in 1848, there was a woman named Nadelia Petkova, uh, also known as Baba Nadelia, who was from Sopot and began working in 1848 as a teacher in Sofia. 
The next year, she began teaching girls and was effectively the kind of founder of women's education in Bulgaria. Yet, as Mary Newberger points out, she was, quote, treated with open hostility, both as an emancipated and independent woman and as a Bulgarianizer of women amid the intensifying Bulgarian Greek cultural struggle. According to one source, she was fired from her job in the city of Prilep because of her extremely free behavior, clothing, and her smoking. End quote. Evidently, a woman openly smoking scandalized mid-19th century Bulgaria, as well as Ottoman and Greek society. They were all kind of mixed together, but I thought that was kind of an interesting little example of uh, both kind of the rise of Bulgarian education, the rise of more emancipated Bulgarian women involved in education, and how smoking played a part in all of that. Hopefully you couldn't hear that airplane, but uh, as we'll discuss when we get into the early 20th century, Sofia's airport was built so that the planes go directly over the center of the city and make all kinds of noise. It's lovely, so we'll get to that in the future. Now, back to Newberger. Her book also points out that while it's hard to pin down just when tobacco came to Bulgaria, by the mid-19th century, Bulgarian men and women were definitely smoking it, though Bulgarian men generally did so in the male-dominated coffee houses, while women did so at home or in salons. Uh, not hair salons, but a, you know, entryway to a house where women would sort of gather and talk. And obviously that was more a practice for wealthier Bulgarian women. Now, talking about cigarettes in particular, initially, Ottomans and people in the Ottoman Empire smoked tobacco with a water pipe, a nargile, or a long smoking pipe, a chibuk. But following the Crimean War, cigarettes became to be more widely used. The irony is that while in the West, the cigarette conjured visions of the luxurious Orient, in Bulgaria, smoking a cigarette, was instead of a nargile or a chibuk, was a statement of westernness. So it's kind of this irony that uh, the cigarette is both a symbol of the East and a symbol of the West, depending on where you are. Even in uh, Ivan Vazov's famous novel Under the Yoke, the manner in which a character smoked helped indicate whether they are part of the old guard or a newer, more European revolutionary character. For example, then, an 1866 memoir from a woman named Radka Kirkova described, quote, We used to have parties every now and then in the houses of Plovdiv's notables and communal leaders. There, the gentlemen spent time mostly in conversations amongst themselves and smoking cigarettes, and the women chatted, flirted, and played cards, interrupted only by the singing of old or rebellious, i.e. nationalist, songs, quote, end quote. Newberger points out how this shows new forms of social interactions taking place in urban homes. And, as we've seen, there's also new forms of social interactions taking place in those coffee houses. But where were those urban homes? Interestingly, by the mid-19th century, the largest urban concentration of Bulgarians was in Constantinople, where about 30 to 40,000 Bulgarians lived. Compare that to Plovdiv, the largest Bulgarian city at the time, which only managed a population of 25 to 30,000 by the year 1900, you know, decades after this. And of course, not all of those people were Bulgarians, though I believe they formed the majority by that point. Now, in Constantinople, the most famous meeting place for Bulgarians was the Balkapan Han, a Han being a kind of inn, in the Fener district of the city. This is where the first Bulgarian printing press was set up back in 1849, and as a result of this and other things, the Han was a kind of consulate and cultural center for this vibrant Bulgarian community. But overall, these coffee houses were becoming 
ever more important centers of politics and community in Bulgaria and the wider Ottoman Empire. And, well, the government was noticing. From the mid-1840s onward, Ottoman sultans used spy networks to monitor coffee houses. And by the mid-19th century, a coffee house was found in just about every Bulgarian town. But the main other tool for the promotion of political ideas remained publishing books and pamphlets and newspapers and all these kinds of things. In February of 1859, Rokovsky published yet another book himself. Now, whatever coffee he was drinking, I'd like some because that man was prolific. This new book traced the history of the Bulgarian language and nationality. So, again, like Hulandarsky, attempting to use history to promote the idea of a cohesive Bulgarian nation which deserved independence. Overall, as more books were being published, the location of printing presses was increasingly within Bulgarian lands as opposed to the early presses which were only in neighboring cities like Constantinople or Belgrade. Now, I've found some conflicting information about this, but it seems that the Ottomans still banned printing presses within Bulgaria, so it's possible some were set up in secret, but this is kind of one of those overall trends occurring roughly around this time. Now, another development was that more and more of the authors who were publishing books and things were from Eastern Bulgaria. And so, as a result, the dialect of Eastern Bulgarian gradually became the kind of standard one for Bulgarian literature. And this will become important when we talk later about the formal codification of the Bulgarian language. But because, remember at this point, there is no formal standard form of Bulgarian, merely kind of a variety of unique spoken forms throughout Bulgarian lands, which have their own, you know, slight dialectical differences. But, as all this is happening, revolutionary activities are also afoot far away. In April of 1859, the Second Italian Independence War began when the Kingdom of Sardinia obtained political backing from France under Napoleon III and provoked Austria into a war in an attempt to annex Austrian lands in northern Italy. The deal was that Sardinia would attempt would kind of obtain these northern Italian territories with France's help, and in exchange, it would give Savoy and Nice to France. Savoy had a French-speaking majority, Nice was a bit more mixed, but, you know, the Sardinians were willing to give it up if it meant they would gain all this territory. The Austrians were provoked into declaring war, and the French, in return, declared war on Austria, and together, France and Sardinia defeated the Austrians in a war that lasted just about three months, so fairly quickly. Austria gave its Italian possessions to France, minus Venice, which it kept, and France then transferred them to Sardinia as the whole Savoy-Nice exchange happened, and overall, following this victory, Sardinia then used its newly found political clout as the kind of biggest and most powerful Italian state to annex the several remaining small central Italian states. As a result, by early 1860, Italy was divided between Austrian-controlled Venice, Sardinia-Piedmont, the small papal states, San Marino, which is, was independent then and is independent now and doesn't really have anything to do with any of this, and the Kingdom of the Two Sicilies, embodying the island of Sicily and southern Italy. So, in other words, a major step towards Italian unification had been taken. In just about another year, actions by the Italian revolutionary Giuseppe Garibaldi saw the Kingdom of the Two Sicilies formally combine with Sardinia Piedmont to form the Kingdom of Italy. At this point, only Austrian-controlled Venice and the Papal States remained outside the kingdom, at least relative to, you know, the full Kingdom of Italy. Again, San Marino is still independent. We can ignore them. 
Now, Bulgarian revolutionaries were taking note, taking particular inspiration from Garibaldi's work, which is one of the reasons there's a square and a monument dedicated to him prominently in central Sofia. Elsewhere, around the same time, another unification movement, which would have a profound effect on Bulgaria, was taking place. Young men in Wallachia and Moldavia, emboldened by European ideas, desired to join those two states into a united Romania. Now, the Peace of Paris, which ended the Crimean War, had set out that basically stated there would be a referendum on the future status of those states. But by this point, there had obviously been quite a few delays. France, under Napoleon III, wanted a unified Romanian state under a foreign monarch, supported by Sardinia-Piedmont and Prussia. These were the states that wanted a unified Romania. They were the states that kind of wanted to upset the status quo there. Napoleon III argued to the Sultan that a united Romania would better be able to resist Russian aggression. Ironically, the Russians had also encouraged this move, seeing their own opportunities to build more economic influence in a newly unified state. The Ottomans, Austrians, and British, on the other hand, were ardent opponents of the idea. They saw the move as the first step towards independence, and an independence that would encourage nearby peoples to seek their own independence, further upsetting the regional balance of power. And the Austrians in particular were concerned about the large Romanian population in Transylvania, so they didn't want a united Romania because it would try to take their Transylvanian territories. The prince of the two, the princes of the two states, Wallachia and Moldavia, were also at odds with the leader of Wallachia, seeing unification as a chance to expand his power, while the prince of Moldavia was saw the likely outcome that his own power would diminish, and so he was against it. Now, back in 1857, elections were held amidst widespread fraud, and as a result, the candidates that were elected were against unification. This caused a small crisis, and France demanded new, fair elections, while Britain just wanted the status quo preserved. France ultimately got its way, and new elections were held the same year. These returned sizable majorities in favor of union. However, this result was unacceptable to the Ottomans, who responded basically by dissolving the assemblies. So, instead of these newly elected assemblies, which, you know, poor poor Romanians had just gone through two elections to, to create and then nothing happened with them, the future of the country would be decided by the great powers, who gathered in Paris to discuss. An agreement was finally reached on August 19th, 1858, and the conclusion was to split the difference. The principalities would remain legally separate, but a joint commission would draw up common legal codes, and the assemblies of each separate principality would need to approve that legal code. The assemblies themselves would be based on limited franchise designed to kind of keep the boyar class in control and make sure things didn't get too revolutionary. However, the councils decided to use the rights that they had been given to elect a chosen prince in an unexpected way. Both councils elected Moldova's Minister of War, Alexander Kuza, to the position, thus joining the states in a personal union in early 1859. Now, this was following the letter of the law, the letter of the agreement reached in Paris, but definitely violated the spirit of the agreement. So, the great powers gathered yet again to decide what they would do in response. Now, it was at this moment that that aforementioned Italian war broke out, which effectively removed Austria from the negotiations because it wasn't really able to exert much authority in its current position. It was too busy with the war. 
With this new balance of power, France was able to negotiate with Britain and force the Ottomans to accept the status quo. The principalities would be legally separate, but the personal union under Cusa would be accepted. Thus, the United Principalities of Moldavia and Wallachia was formed with Cusa as its head, but with separate administrations running each region. This made the politics quite complex, and the fact that Cusa was a pretty weak leader meant that the conservative and liberal political parties just fought it out like cats and dogs, and, well, it was a bit chaotic for the time. Uh, but the situation didn't last very long, and in 1861, the two administrations were formally allowed to join as one, establishing the first Romanian state. Although, technically, all of this was only supposed to last for Cusa's lifetime term as prince, but, I mean, I don't know how we're going to put that genie back in the bottle. And so that's where I'm going to leave off with those two unification movements. But in the span of a few short years, we've now seen two new states arrive on the European stage for the first time, Italy and Romania. For Bulgarians, though, the main focus of their movement was still on church independence. In July of 1859, the Bulgarian population of Kilkis in Macedonia sent a petition to the Pope denouncing the Patriarchate for its violent, illegal, and immoral actions. They asked the Pope to accept them into the Catholic Church, which was more evidence of the growing power of the Uniate movement that was so worrying the Russians, and I've mentioned it a little bit before. Now, this worried the Patriarchate enough that they allowed a Bulgarian named Parteni Zogravsky to become Bishop of Kilkis. Now, later that year, on the 18th of October, Uniat Church patrons, headed by Dragan Tsankov, drew up a plea for the recognition of the Bulgarian Uniat Church. However, like the recent plea from the Bulgarians of Constantinople for their own church, it was ignored. Soon after, yet more Bulgarians in Constantinople handed a new plea to the main Catholic official in the city, asking the Pope to grant the Bulgarian church autonomy under his jurisdiction, in effect offering for all Bulgarians to become Uniat Church members. Again, so... The Uniate Church, if you've forgotten, is basically Orthodox Christians who recognize the primacy of the Pope. So kind of, you know, they, they still do everything basically the way Orthodox Christians do, but the Pope is their head. So that's kind of how that works. Now, back in Constantinople, August 1st saw the death of the most prominent Bulgarian in the city, Stefan Bogoridi. A few months later, his son laid the foundation stone for a new Bulgarian church in the city, and a prayer was read by the patriarch himself, Kiro. While this show of unity between the Bulgarian Orthodox community and the Patriarchate was meaningful, elsewhere, relations were fraying even more. On the 20th of December, during a Sunday Mass in a church in Plovdiv, a, an actual fight broke out between Greeks and Bulgarians because the service had been read in Bulgarian. Clearly, the compromised positions of allowing Bulgarians greater representation and language rights within the church weren't going over very well with Greek members who were used to their dominance of the institution and that reality was pushing some to take even more dramatic action. At the end of March 1860, the representatives of the Bulgarians in Constantinople held a meeting in which Petko Slavikov and other influential church patrons decided to organize an official breaking of ties with the Patriarchate. They then filed a plea with the port, with the Ottoman government, asking for permission to do this. Soon after, on Easter Sunday, Ilarion Makiriopolsky, who was made a bishop two years earlier in an Ottoman nod to growing Bulgarian demands for representation within the Patriarchate, held a church service without the approval of the Patriarch, 
and in that service he replaced the name of the patriarchate with that of the sultan, in effect pledging loyalty to one above the other and sort of in effect declaring the independence of the Bulgarian church. In response, the patriarchate called a council of bishops, which very strongly condemned Makariopolsky, but he continued to hold church services nonetheless, without permission, and as a result, he was exiled to Mount Athos along with the bishops of Veles and Plovdiv, who had supported him. Also, although they had you know, for now been exiled, their actions had further galvanized Bulgarian support for church independence. And Around this time, there was still growing, though minor, support for that same Uniate movement. Again, this kind of version of orthodoxy which recognizes the Pope. Now, the Uniate movement, again, despite not being that large in numbers, was still worrying the Russian government and the Metropolitan of Moscow in particular. Now, the, the Russians had supported the Patriarchate against Bulgarian church independence because they wanted to maintain a unified Orthodox church because they saw, basically, they thought, it would be easier for Moscow to exert some control and influence over a unified church. But this Uniate movement led the Metropolitan to actually change his stance and support Bulgarian church independence, believing at this point that it would actually be better than the alternative, which by kind of in the eyes of the Metropolitan of Moscow was to see the growing power of the Uniate movement. And so, you know, it's kind of a political game. Beat the Uniate movement, halt the growing kind of power of the Pope by supporting Bulgarian church independence and allowing for the fragmentation of orthodoxy. So, although again, the unit movement is still pretty small, its influence is quite substantial at this point. Now, meanwhile in Serbia, September 1860 saw the death of our old friend Prince Miloš Obrenović at around 80 years old. He had ruled this time for just about two years after the Serbian assembly had thrown out Alexander Karadjordjevic. He, Miloš Obranovic, was then succeeded by his son Mihailo Obranovic, who you'll remember had been overthrown himself back in 1842. Mihailo immediately began placing more power in his own office at the expense of the assembly. Now, interestingly, he had also begun negotiations with Lajos Kosuth, which I can't get used to saying Laios Kosuth instead of Kosuth Laios because, well, I used to live in Hungary and in Hungarian the names are read in the other order and, you know, Kosuth's name is everywhere in Hungary. There's streets everywhere named after him. And anyways, just a weird little thing about Hungary. But anyway, Prince of Serbia is talking with Kosuth, who you'll remember was the leader of the Hungarian Revolution in 1848. And he was also talking with the leaders of France and the leaders of the revolutionary movement in Italy who are unifying that country. He was also talking with the leaders of Wallachia and Moldavia. All these folks together were discussing a plan for opening up a new front in the French and Italian war against the Austrians in Hungary, essentially you know, putting way more pressure on the Austrians by forcing them to divert military resources. In return, the idea was to form a Danubian federal state made up of Hungary, Serbia, and Romania, which would also guarantee the autonomy of Croatia. However, the Austrians were defeated way too fast for this to really move forward. And actually, Italy was pretty angry at the French for allowing the, basically letting the war end so quickly because, well, Venice was still yet to be liberated from the Austrians. But France was concerned that weakening Austria too much would upset the balance of power and trigger a wider conflict. Because remember, 
You know, most European great powers were still very concerned with maintaining the status quo. And so France had to walk a delicate line. It couldn't upset the balance too much because then, you know, Prussia and, uh, and Britain in particular would probably feel the need to step in and restore a balance of power. And this could have triggered a wider war. So as a result, Prince Mikhailo concluded that the great powers just couldn't be relied on to support Serbia and the other Balkan states on anything other than political expediency, which the Bulgarians had known for quite a long time, but uh, it's good that the Serbians were catching up at this point. Within a year, the prince saw the passage of a law mandating military service for all able-bodied men between the ages of 20 and 50 years old. In a pattern we'll see repeated elsewhere, Serbia began turning itself into a highly militarized state in an effort to use that military to see its national goals achieved. Again, basically Serbia is saying we can't rely on anyone else except ourselves, so we need to militarize. Prince Mikhailo also began raising issues about the continued presence of Ottoman garrisons in Serbia. In response, Rokovsky left Odessa, heading for Belgrade, motivated by these increasing, increasing tensions between Belgrade and Constantinople. Rokovsky was convinced that this moment was a good chance to organize armed actions against the Ottomans. He arrived in Belgrade on February the 20th. A few months later in November, Rokovsky was meeting with Prince Obrenovich, and after a long discussion, they agreed that the Serbian government would help mediate the church dispute between the Bulgarians and the Greeks. Meanwhile, the Ottoman government began a more serious campaign to prevent the dissemination of Rokovsky's works in Bulgaria, because, well, they weren't exactly happy with all his books and pamphlets and newspapers and things running around everywhere. And that's where I'm going to leave things off today. Italy and Romania have unified. Serbia is striking out on its own, building an army. The Uniat Church movement is on the rise, and Russia, the Patriarchate, and the Ottomans are all freaking out about it, and facing ever-growing demands for Bulgarian church independence. Rakowski is doing what he does, running around everywhere being a revolutionary, writing books and pamphlets and discussing with leaders and forming revolutionary cells. And well, as we enter the decade of the 1860s, the map of Europe is changing faster than ever. Next time, we'll see all of these movements and ideas progress even further. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. Check out the Bulgarian language version of the podcast at bghistorypodcast.com. And I'll catch you in the next one.